Good evening. Well, we come to the uh, last lesson in our series on the Minor Prophets. I want to tell you that next week we're going to do something a little different on Sunday night. Um, something we're going to do a few times throughout this year and then next year as well. About four times this year we're going to do this, and one of those is going to be next Sunday night, where Larry Bell and I are going to be co-preaching, and uh, you're going to hear from our elders a few times this year and next year. Larry Bell will be the elder that we are talking with next Sunday night. I think this is a good opportunity for our congregation to get to know and hear from our elders a little more. Uh, next week, Larry's going to be speaking about leadership. I'm going to be involved in a discussion with him that uh, hopefully you'll get a lot out of and get a perspective from our elders that maybe uh, you haven't gotten in a while. So we're calling that Shepherd Talk. We're going to do that next week and then a few other times uh, throughout the year. And so I hope you'll join us for that. But tonight, we're finishing up our series by looking at Malachi. Let me ask you this. How many of you, as parents, have ever had to discipline your child? And after disciplining your child... You thought you laid down the hammer pretty good. You thought you, you gave the punishment that uh, was fitting of the crime, so to speak. But even after you've punished them, after you've scolded them, grounded them, spanked them, whatever, they go back and they do the very same thing again. And you think to yourself, what did I do wrong? How did I mess this up? I thought I addressed the problem. I thought I took care of it abruptly, swiftly, and with action. And yet they went back and did the very same thing again. And so you catch them, and you scold them again. You're even angrier this time. The punishment is going to be even more severe. And they cry, and they beg and plead for mercy. And you think, well, why did you do it again in the first place? And you begin to realize they weren't so much sad that they disappointed you or did something wrong, they were probably more sad that they got caught. Now imagine that you discipline your child, that they go and they do the very same thing again, but not only that, they use it as a springboard to do other things that you disapprove of. And not only that, as you try to bring down the hammer even harder, they accuse you of being a bad parent. And they say things to you like, well, I mean, what am I really doing wrong? I mean, who's to say that this is wrong? I hate you. If you can wrap your mind around that a little bit, you understand God as a parent with his people in the book of Malachi. That is what God as the father is dealing with with his children. You see, the remnant returns, the rebuilding has been completed, but it doesn't take long for Israel to slip right back into its old ways. About a hundred years have passed, and if we learn anything from the message in the book of Malachi, it's that the exile didn't really do any good. Because now the people are back to being rebellious, immoral, doing all the things that their predecessors had done. And so now Malachi enters the scene. And the book of Malachi can really be described as a series 
of disputes. God is typically going to make a claim or an accusation, and then Israel is going to respond by disagreeing with that claim, and then God fires back, of course, and he has the last word. This back-and-forth exchange happens six times in the book. The first three times, they focus on exposing Israel's corruption, and then the final three disputes are all about God confronting their corruption. The overall theme in all of this is that the Israelites haven't learned their lesson. They're back to their old ways. They're just as morally bankrupt as ever. And this new generation had not learned from their history. And because they had not learned from it, they were doomed to repeat it. We can further break down the book like this. You have God's love, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. You have God's accusations, chapters 1, uh, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 15. And then you have God's coming, chapter 3, verse 15, through chapter 4, and verse 6. If you would, look with me at chapter 1. And let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1 and following. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so God tells his people, I love you. And God's people says, how? I mean, how do you love us? If you loved us, you wouldn't have done all this bad stuff to us. Don't tell us you love us, because obviously you don't. It's kind of like that spoiled child who gets everything handed to them, but the moment that their father or their mother dishes out some discipline, they get angry, and they get mad at their parents and believe that they are treating them unfairly. The parent just wants what's best for their child. They just want to make sure that they are well-adjusted, that they contribute something to society, that they're not a rebel and they don't end up in prison. They love their child, and so they discipline their child. You don't really love your child if you're going to let them get away with murder and never discipline them. But these people couldn't see that. The Israelites couldn't see it. Now look at verses 10 through 14. It says, Oh, that there were one among you, who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Notice that. He said, I love you, and now he says, I'm not pleased with you. Can you love your child and still not be pleased with them? Absolutely. He says, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. 
for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So among the many accusations that God makes toward his people, one is the fact that the priests were, were bringing lame offerings. They were despised of the Lord. They had failed to honor God properly. There was no reverence. They were simply going through the motions. The altar had been defiled. Their worship was worthless. And they brought these polluted offerings before the Lord. In fact, their whole life was a polluted offering. They weren't trying. They were lazy. They were apathetic. And God says, How have, God says that you have the gall to come to me and offer this polluted sacrifice, these polluted lives. All I've done is love you. All I've done is shown you how much I love you. Even by disciplining you, I was showing you how much I love you. And yet they have the audacity to say, well, how have you loved us? I mean, have you really loved us? I mean, even think back to their history. All the things that God had done for them to bring them to this point. And evidently, they choose to forget all of that. And instead of listening and sincerely seeking repentance, they just want to argue with God. Tied to this polluted worship theme was the fact that they were also robbing God. If you look at, at chapter 4 and verse 8 and 9, it says, Will a man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The people, you see, had, had stopped giving their best to God. They were keeping what was best for them, and they were wasting it away. And this was really their whole livelihood. It wasn't just about their polluted sacrifices. It was about their polluted lives. Their whole lives were about robbing God. They took and they took, but they only gave God the crumbs or what they didn't want. And not only did they not give God his due in tithes and offerings, they didn't give him his heart either or give, them, give him their heart as well. And we know what Jesus said about the greatest command. and We see it over in the Old Testament as well. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. And certainly they were not doing it. But if you look at chapter 4 now in verse 1, go up to verse 1 and following. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So as with all the minor prophets that we have discussed, there is a message of hope. When everything seems like doom and gloom, there is a silver lining. It's only the faithful who are going to have this hope. The only one that can see the silver lining are the ones who turn and repent and seek to be faithful. And what does this hope look like? 
Well, Malachi says it looks like Jesus. Actually, it looks like Elijah as well. Of course, we learn in the New Testament that Elijah is really John the baptizer who comes to prepare the way for Jesus. John comes to purify the people because the king is coming to town. And when is this going to happen? Well, I'm sure the people hearing this for the first time were hoping that it would happen within their lifetime. But there's still about 400 years before this comes to fruition. The faithful of God would have to wait and rely on God's promise. We've been talking about this in, in the Yak class on Wednesday night and, and talking about how we interpret the Bible and how we approach the Bible. And one of the things that I, that I mentioned is it's so interesting how these prophets are speaking a promise to people who would never, ever see it come to fruition. You think about that. I mean, here's a promise, and it's as if the prophet is saying, oh, by the way, you won't see this, but somebody in, in the distant future will. But it only goes to show that God has a plan. He's always had a plan. And when we approach the Bible, we have to go to the Bible knowing that he has a plan and that he uses real people to carry out his plan. And so here, he's pointing to the coming of Jesus. He's pointing to the coming of John the baptizer who leads the way for Jesus coming to town, of course. And the promise is fulfilled when Jesus is born of a virgin woman, laid in a manger, and, and grows up and teaches and heals and yet these same stubborn, spoiled, rebellious people do what? They nail him to a cross. But that wasn't the end either. Because God's plan is always going to come to fruition. God's purpose will always be fulfilled. No one, not even his stubborn children, can stop it. Jesus leaves the tomb and thus displays his victory over sin and death. And those who seek to follow after him, those who clothe themselves with him, find fellowship with the Father for all eternity. Yet those who remain stubborn and spoiled and selfish, they'll be separated from God for all eternity. So that's really the synopsis of the book of Malachi. Israel returns. It doesn't take them long to fall back into their old ways. God exposes their sins. They don't like it. They argue with God. God confronts their wickedness. His son is coming. And when he comes, there will be glory for those who seek God. And there will be anything but glory for those who choose to remain stubborn and rebellious. But there is this, this overriding theme in the book of Malachi. And as we've gone through this series, we've looked at how, how does our story fit this story, right? And we've talked about our approach to the Bible needs to be that as one continuous story. God uses real people to tell that story, and we're included in that story. When we are baptized into Christ, we become a part of the story. We are the faithful remnant. We are the new Israel. We are the chosen people, right, of God. But there's another way that this story affects us. Because there is one overriding theme in the book of Malachi. And it's the words, so what? That seems to be the attitude of the people, of the priests. So what? I mean, we get this picture of the people shrugging their shoulders, putting their hands up and saying, yeah, so what? What's it all matter? What difference does any of this make anyway? They had turned away from the Father. The people were doing things that they had done before. And the attitude behind all of this, behind all the, the, the accusations that God makes and everything else, the response is, so what? And that's bone chilling when you think about it, right? When you think about a people can be so apathetic that they would respond to God in that way, that they have this blatant disregard for God and his covenant. 
And God often relates his covenant with his people to the covenant of marriage. And if you know if in Malachi, at one point God says, I hate divorce. And the reason he says that is because his people had divorced him. They had turned away from him. They had broken covenant with him. That was the motivation behind those words. Look at Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce because of what it does to people, namely what it does to his people. They had chosen spiritual adultery. They had turned away from him. That is the context of these words. And God is saying, I hate that. I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. And you don't seem to want that. And not only do you not seem to want that, you want to argue with me, and at the end of the day, you want to say, so what, what's it matter? Who cares? They bring their polluted lives before the Lord. They weep and they groan before God because he rejects them. They do as they please. They blatantly disregard what the Lord has said, and they soak the altar in tears. And when God says that's not good enough, they get angry? What do you mean it's not good enough? And God points to the covenant as a symbol of his covenant people. He points to marriage as a symbol of the covenant with his people. And we know that marriage is serious business. Jesus taught about it. We know that God instituted it. This is a solemn and binding covenant. And so it's appropriate that God would use it as a symbol of the covenant that he has with his people. And these people had stepped outside of the covenant. They committed spiritual adultery by worshiping idols. They had broken covenant. The capricious divorce that was going on in Malachi's time was symbolic of the breaking of God's covenant with his bride, which prompts the words, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God had been faithful to his bride over and over again. And yet they had been unfaithful to him over and over again. These people had made a mess of their lives. They had been unfaithful in their marriages, in their relationship with God, in their, in their covenant, and yet they still turn to God and say, okay, go ahead and bless us. And God is saying, are you kidding me? You want me to bless you? You have the gall to ask me to bless you? You have the gall even to argue with me after all that you've done? You've been living a polluted life. You've been completely unfaithful and even apathetic about it. And you want me to bless you? Here's where we come into the story. Because I'm afraid that sometimes we may not be all that different. We may not be as blatant as the people of God here in Malachi. But do we ever do the bare minimum and expect God to bless us? Well, I come to church every Sunday. Why isn't God blessing me? I read my Bible. I'm a pretty good person. As if those kind of things build up credit in our account. 
and we can put God into our debt. I know some of you are on social media. You see this play out sometimes on social media. We all have that friend or maybe a few friends on social media. I use that term loosely because of the thousands of friends I have, probably only 80 of them are really friends, I mean, that I keep up with, right? But these folks will put stuff on social media that's off color, that is blatantly ungodly. And then every now and then they'll have a religious post. Now all of a sudden they want to give religious advice. You know, somebody the other day had a post, I I know God is going to bless me. And yet most of social media and their timeline is a platform for ungodliness. We do it, I'm afraid, sometimes in our daily lives in that we give God our crumbs not necessarily consciously or deliberately, but we give God our crumbs and then we get put out when maybe God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we would like him to. I think every day there are Christians who traipse through this life without a spiritual care in the world, maybe even thinking, what difference does it make? And still they cry out to God for blessings, and perhaps God is no different than he was in the time of Malachi. Perhaps he'd say, are you serious? Are you kidding me? You're going to give me your crumbs and expect me to bless you? I mean, if you were the father of a stubborn child like Israel, what would you do? How would you handle that situation? What would your response be? Surely we can understand how God handled that situation. How he could be hurt and even angry by their response. He loved them. He says that from the very beginning. And all of the discipline, even the captivity, was a response to his love because he wanted what was best for them. It was to bring them back into compliance. I think... Sometimes we, we forget that as well. We face trials or tribulation in life and we want to blame God. Forgetting that God loves us, and that God will see us through. God forgives even polluted, apathetic people. Like Israel. Like you and me. And if you look at Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 16, it reads... Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So there's going to come a day when God is through with the apathetic and the polluted. There will come a day when the stubborn, hard-hearted individuals will say, so what, and they're going to be cut off from God. Our long-suffering and patient God will eventually cut them off. And that eternal separation will be due to the fact that they broke covenant. God didn't want it that way. 
He will love them all the way to hell. That's not what he wanted, but he's going to give them what they choose. But for the faithful remnant, he says, I will take care of you. There's a silver lining. For the faithful remnant that says, I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength, God says, I'm here for you. I will take you in, and I will restore you. In other words, there is even hope for the polluted and the apathetic. Even the one that maybe right now is saying, ah, so what? What difference does it make? But the only hope that they have is turning around, repenting, and being faithful. I say all that to say this. Here is a thought that bothers me greatly and a thought that keeps me awake sometimes at night and something that may be the biggest concern I have as a minister. And that is that there may be Christians right here at Oldham Lane, maybe even here tonight, who are simply going through the motions, who are apathetic, who show no real concern for putting God first, and maybe even are saying, what difference does it make? It's a concern that I have that maybe there are people right here at Oldham Lane who think that their stale and polluted life is good enough. It greatly concerns me. And I hope that it greatly concerns you as well. There are many folks who categorize Christianity, and by that I mean they have all these categories in their life, school, work, whatever it may be, and, and, and church is one of those categories. Christianity is one of those categories. We celebrated the resurrection last Sunday as part of what our world calls Easter. But did it change any of you on Monday? Did the worship that you engaged in on Sunday morning as we refocused and concerning the resurrection, did it truly change the way that you lived Monday through Saturday? Will you walk out of here tonight and, and the worship that we have engaged in today, will it change you? Because I'm afraid that it doesn't for too many people. Too many people who wear the title of Christian. But here's something that bothers me even more than all of that. What bothers me even more than all of that is that there may be Christians right here at Oldham Lane who are going through the motions, who are apathetic, and they'll leave here tonight and be perfectly fine with it. That it won't bother them a bit. And that they won't feel a need to change anything. Remember the message to the lazy and lukewarm Laodiceans. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What's worse than being lukewarm? Not caring. What's worse than being wretched and miserable and blind and naked? Being numb to it. That's worse. 
And I'm afraid that there are too many Christians, maybe even some right here at Oldham Lane, who are apathetic and who may say, so what? And there may be some that are in that state that aren't here tonight. That are giving God their crumbs and thinking that that's good enough. Folks, over the last just six months, I have been confronted with illness and death on a regular basis. And if that doesn't change you, then you don't have a heart. And it brings into focus even clearer than ever that someday I'm going to be in that state if I live long enough. I'm going to be on hospice or I'm going to contract some sort of illness or disease that will take my life. I may die tragically, but if I live long enough, my wife's going to have to learn how to deal with losing me, or I'm going to have to learn how to deal with losing her. And that seems like, like a million miles away right now, but the truth of the matter is, you're all born with an expiration date, and none of you know when it's coming due. And the time to prepare is right now. And if you are lukewarm, there is nothing more important tonight than settling God's stomach. If we can help you do that, come now as we stand and as we sing. Jesus is tenderly calling before, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love will thy roam, farther and farther away.